Ecclesiastes 5, 1-7 Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we are excited to get into your word. God, although we've been um, listening and considering and meditating on your word throughout this service. We've been singing songs that speak of who you are and who we are because of how great you are. And We're just so thankful that we can now um, collectively sit under your word and hear what you have to say. And we ask God that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be able to do what you tell us to say. God, thank you that your word is clear and how it truly is a light unto our path. I pray, God, that you would please, um, again, through your Holy Spirit, make it even farther clear to us. God, expose some areas in our own lives, and our own hearts, where we need to be more like Jesus. For there are many places in our lives where we need to be more like Jesus. We ask, God, as we consider this text, that you be honored and glorified, that your word would be spoken clearly, that we would receive it the way it ought to be received, and that you be blessed, and that we would be more like Jesus. So we lift this all up in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again. That was an extended time of fellowship. We were going for it. You guys were happy to meet. Um, Well, I'm very thankful to be here to worship Jesus and to gather with all of you this morning. Um... We've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's been a really, a real huge blessing in my own life, and I'm sure the church's life, as you guys can testify, the wisdom that has been brought forward in this book, along with the reflection that it brings as far as what life is, where satisfaction is found, and it all ultimately pointing to that satisfaction being found in God. Now, for those of you who know me and my wife, we were somewhat born and raised in Riverside. I spent majority of my of my childhood in Riverside, but my wife, she spent her entire life there up until a couple years ago until I moved her out of here, moved her out here, excuse me, and um, she was born, raised in the same house in Riverside, and she had this neighbor, and she told me about him a couple different times, but his name was Adolf, and if that doesn't make you raise your eyebrow a little bit, um, his son's name was Adolf Jr., and which they affectionately called Little Adolf. Now, Taylor remembers this, this neighbor having a philosophy of life that he would, he would continually share with, with Taylor and her dad, and she heard him say it more times than not, um, 
But he would say, and I'm changing some of the vocabulary here, life stinks and then you die. Hey, you guys have heard that before. Life stinks and then you die. Now up to this point, the writer of Ecclesiastes has gone to great lengths to argue that everything done under the sun, in his opinion, in his words, is vanity of vanities and a striving after the wind. And honestly, if you were to single out the last five chapters or four chapters that we've gone through in this book of Ecclesiastes, single it out in the whole scope of Scripture, and only focus in on what we have studied, one could argue that this book, with a few exceptions, is a pretty big advocate of that life philosophy. Life stinks, and then you die. And that's because the writer of this book has done a really, really good job at showing us that all the things we try to find meaning and purpose in, in this life under the sun, ultimately amounts to nothing. Sure, the preacher, he's called the preacher here, gives us great insight into wisdom, work, rest, contentment, which I greatly appreciate. But he has yet to come to something that we can do that carries over into eternity. So far, he has shown us several areas in life that humanity attempts to find meaning and purpose in. And if you've been with us these past five weeks, the preacher has taken us on quite a journey. I like the way I think of it. Is it's, it's as if the preacher, the writer of this book, is in a tall tower over his kingdom, and he's pulling out a spyglass. As he does so, he's surveying his kingdom and taking us on a journey of what these areas in life, and these areas in the kingdom, where he's finding them to be ultimately meaningless. He comes to the universities and the learning institutions to test wisdom and knowledge, and he finds that their ultimate end is vanity. He then focuses in on his own kingdom and the pleasures and the amenities that come with being a young, rich king, and there, too, he finds their ultimate end is vanity and a chasing after wind. He looks to the marketplaces, the workers in the fields, the streets, and also the courtrooms, and again, he concludes all vanity, all a grasping after the wind. So far, his positive encouragement has been to simply enjoy what you have, when you have it, be content, find enjoyment in your toil under the sun for the few days of your life that God has given you, for this is your lot. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. After much serving and much disappointment, as the, preacher, as the preacher continues to survey his kingdom with his spyglass, something catches his eye here in chapter 5. And it's none other than the house of God. We also know this as the temple. Commentator Matthew Henry stated, Let our disappointment in the creature turn our eyes to the creator. And so with God in mind, the preacher, the writer of this book, now is looking beyond the sun and is able to identify something meaningful, something that we can do under the sun that actually matters, something that is not here today and gone tomorrow, but continues on into eternity, and that is our under-the-sun interaction with the -the beyond-the-sun God. He is finding meaning in our under-the-sun interaction with the -the beyond-the-sun God. And in Solomon's day, this interaction primarily took place in the temple. Now, to to learn a few things about the temple before we go any further, there's a lot to be said about the temple that King Solomon built in ancient Israel. 
If you can remember last year's study through the book of Exodus, then you might be able to recall the construction of what they call the temporary temple, again called the tabernacle. The description of how God's temporary dwelling looked is absolutely amazing. The finest materials with the most skilled laborers working, carving, sculpting, sewing together a place on wheels, so to speak, for God to dwell with his people as they headed to the promised land. The tabernacle was essentially God's mobile home as they traveled through the desert. And as beautiful as it was, it was still a mobile home. And you can only do so much with a mobile home. So Solomon was commissioned by God to build a more permanent dwelling place for God to reside with his people. And I only need to say one thing about that, about the way it looks, and that is that it was described as being absolutely stunning. The temple's beauty was meant to, to stand out amongst all other structures, and it did, because it was the house of God. Now, it's important for us to understand a few things about temple worship in ancient Israel. It was here that God's people congregated to commune and pray, offer sacrifices, make vows, and to hear from him. It was a place to go to interact with God. Now, ancient Israel didn't think God was restrained to a building. Their understanding was that all of creation was and is God's temple, but the temple was a sacred place where heaven and earth met. And it was here that God spoke and communed with his people primarily. In our text this morning, the preacher is both witnessing and recalling all that he has seen and done in the temple throughout the years. And after observing and studying what takes place there, the preacher offers wisdom. And it begins with a warning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. The preacher is saying, when you go to the temple to worship God, go prepared. Go to God adjusted. Enter into God's presence fit to both give and to receive from him. Because there is a proper posture to assume when going to worship God. And in our text today, the preacher is going to highlight two areas that compose a proper way in which we ought to come to the house of God to worship him. Enter into God's presence ready to, number one, listen intently. Number one, listen intently. And number two, enter into God's presence ready to speak fittingly. To speak carefully. Ecclesiastes 5.1 To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. When you come to the house of God, come ready to receive his word. Our opening passage of scripture, the call to worship that Sean did, was a call to do just that, to hear and listen God's word. What we do here at church is something so important, and that is to hear from God collectively. The word listen here is a word that communicates both to hear and to do. It is the same posture a servant takes up towards his master's every word. Or it is the same posture of an obedient son who is receiving his loving father's instruction. The idea here is that those who enter God's presence long for and delight in what God has to say. And when they hear from him, they go on to live 
in light of what they have heard. They listen with the intent of obeying. The Shema found in Deuteronomy 6, known as one of the most important prayers in the whole Bible, starts off with this same idea of listening and obeying. Deuteronomy 6, verse 3. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of our fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In the New Testament, the Apostle James puts it this way in James chapter 1, verse 19. Be quick to hear. And he goes on to say in James 1, 22, But be doers of his word, doers of the word, and not hearers only, only deceiving yourself. James is saying, if you're coming to hear from God, but not listening with the intent of obeying, then the obvious conclusion is that your listening is worthless. You aren't deceiving God. You're only deceiving yourself, and this is what the preacher is getting at in our text here. The preacher states, it is better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. The point he is making here is the same point the prophet Samuel makes when King Saul... Israel's first king didn't hear and obey God, but still offered a sacrifice, falsely thinking that God would prefer a sacrifice over obedience. Samuel says this in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. In like fashion, if we just come to Sunday worship thinking that God is more pleased with our tithe or our time rather than an eager heart and a willing ear to listen and obey, we too are offering the sacrifice of fools. Now, in recent months, I would say the greatest example of someone who hears and doesn't listen is my daughter, Monroe. And if you know her, she's almost three, and she wasn't always this way, or maybe she was, and now she's able to, like, communicate it. But you can tell that kid till you're blue in the face not to do something, and she'll just totally say, okay. You set her down, and she does it right away. It's absolutely amazing. We were at Target the other day, and um, there was, like, she has this thing where she likes puddles. And uh, there was, like, this 15-foot puddle in the parking lot, and I spot it, and I recognize the danger and what's going to happen here. But I want to give her the opportunity to like be obedient. So I pick her up, I point it out to her, and I say, Monroe, do not walk in that puddle. And she said, okay. And I said, do not walk in it because you will get all wet, you will be cold, and you will not, it will not go well with you. And she said, okay. And I set her down, and she's wearing her little Patagonia jacket, and she just bolts it. And I usually when she does that, I can grab the back of her jacket. I miss it. Completely miss the back of her jacket. Arms wide open complete bliss and joy, just straight through this 15-foot puddle in the Target parking lot. And when she got to the end of it, she just started walking casually and acted like nothing happened. Like it was just, she did not know that it was wrong is what she was acting like. Now, that amazes me. And I know that Monroe hears me, but she had no intention of obeying me. She has no intention of listening to me certain times, Okay. And we're getting better at that. There is discipline in, in order. 
Now, the preacher here is clearly stating that those who go to the house of God to listen but don't obey are fools. The application here is very straightforward. When we gather to worship on Sunday, be prepared to hear God's word and live in obedience to it. When we gather here on Sunday, be prepared to listen to God's word and to live in light of it when we leave this place. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. The preacher is now saying, when you come to the house of God, recognize that your heart will be heard. When we come to the house of God, we need to recognize that our heart will be heard by God. So don't let your heart be hurried to speak. Jesus made an extremely provocative statement in the Gospel of Luke when teaching on our hearts and our words. He said in Luke 6, verse 45, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. To quote Matthew Henry again, he said, Thoughts are words to God. And words are but wind if they do not copy the thoughts. In other words, the intent of our heart is what gives our words their real meaning. And the preacher is instructing his audience that when you approach God in prayer, speak carefully, speak sincerely, because God knows your heart. He goes on to say in Ecclesiastes 5.2, For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Let your words be few. Because just like the overly busy person, exhaustion brings many confusing and nonsensical dreams, so too the fool's mouth brings many empty words. Jesus' teaching on prayer is, a particular helpful, is particularly helpful in understanding both why we should remember God's awesomeness when we're talking to him in prayer, as well as why we should keep our words few. In Matthew 6, verse 7, this is what Jesus had to say about prayer. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus is teaching that God knows our hearts. He knows our needs. He knows our wants. Everything, he knows everything before we even utter a word. He knows the motive in each one of our requests and our prayers. And if that's true, which it is, then when we pray to God, we should speak honest and we should speak few. God knows the heart. Now, considering the danger of hasty words, the preacher then launches into a danger area when it comes to quick and foolish speaking. Chapter 5, verse 4, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. 
the preacher is addressing a particular offering to God called a vow. And a vow is a lot like a promise and a covenant wrapped up into one. It's not a legal matter like a covenant, but it does require two parties holding up to their end of the deal. And those parties always consisted of God and either a person or a family or a people group. One of the most famous, well-known Old Testament vows is the vow between a woman named Hannah who makes a vow with God or to God. She tells God that if he gives her a son, she will give him back to the Lord to serve him all the days of his life. And God gives Hannah a son, and his name was Samuel. And Hannah did, not, did what she vowed. She gave her son back to the Lord, and she gave her son to Samuel to the priesthood. And Samuel eventually became known as one of the most great prophets of God in the Old Testament. If you want to read more about vows, they're trickled throughout all of the Old Testament. You can read more about that vow in 1 Samuel chapter 1 if you're interested. But the preacher here is highlighting vows because he was witnessing people going to the temple and making vows that were either A, dragging their feet on repaying or paying, or B, telling the priest or the messenger that there was some kind of miscommunication when they made the vow and that they were unwilling to hold up to their end of the vow. The preacher is simply saying that if you make a vow to God, keep it. If you make a promise to God, keep it. God will not be mocked, and there will be consequences. Anyone who thinks they can promise God something and get away with not fulfilling that promise demonstrates that they are both foolish and that they have zero reverence or fear of God. So he exhorts the reader to not delay in repaying their vow, and if they can't even pay the vow, then do not make a vow at all. Now, if you were with us when we started through the book of James a few months ago, um, you're probably seeing how synced up both the book of James and the book of Ecclesiastes is. It's actually pretty amazing in God's wonderful sovereignty, how he works these things out, how the truths all are tied together, the correlations between the two. And, and James has a lot to say about our words, about hearing, but also about making promises. In James chapter 5, James draws a pretty hard line against making any kind of promise to anyone. He says in James 5, 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Which is really a reiteration of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, where Jesus taught, verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 36. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So for us today, I believe scripture is clear on staying away from vows and simply letting our yes be yes and our no be no. I think this is something that may sound super simple, but it's something that we should really take to heart. Because I feel like even though we know that, or even though now we've been taught that, we can make very foolish promises to God throughout our life. Whether it be a promise to God that if he blesses you financially, then you're going to hook the church up in the tithing department. Or it be a promise to God that if he forgives you of some grievous sin or gets you out of some troublesome circumstance, then you will start being obedient. Then you will go on and never get yourself into a predicament like that. 
These are silly promises, but they're foolish promises, and I think they're made quite often. How foolish would it be of us to think that we can bargain with God? Making promises with God is risky business because we as flawed people break our promises quite often. We would do well to listen and obey the teaching of Christ as well as slow to speak and not make vows at all. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your word in all matters, showing a sincere reverence to God. Now, in closing, our application today's passage has been gathered from an Old Testament view of entering into God's presence via temple worship, which means our application this morning is directed towards Sunday morning worship. That is the most modern-day equivalent. We ought to come to church prepared. When we gather for Sunday worship, we receive God's word, ready to listen, ready to obey, to speak a fitting word, to have a heart check, to listen intently and to speak carefully, which are great words of encouragement for us today. A great word of encouragement to know that when we come to gather to worship together, to have heart checks, heart prep, be prepared. But there are New Testament implications that stretch so much farther beyond how we prepare ourselves for Sunday gatherings. And they begin with an understanding of who Jesus is. First, we need to understand that Jesus is the perfect worshiper. Jesus is the perfect worshiper. When we enter into God's presence corporately to sing songs of praise, to receive God's word, to partake in the Lord's Supper, etc., Far be it from us to enter in flippantly. Far be it for us to come in here and just kind of go through the motions, just kind of do our religious duty, just, you know, come to church, what we're supposed to do. To be present, but not really. This can be a real struggle at times. And the word for us today is to be prepared, but we fail at this still, right? We still can come to church distracted at times. We still offer imperfect worship to God because sometimes our hearts are wandering. Sometimes we are distracted. But do not be discouraged this morning. Because if we have fallen short in this area, recognize that Jesus is the true worshiper. And in Jesus, there is grace upon grace as well as strength to prepare anew. Jesus didn't only take away our sins, which he did, and, it was, and it's amazing. Praise God that Jesus took away our sins. But he also gave us his righteousness. He also gifted us his perfect worship. So when the Father sees us, although we are flawed creatures who come with flawed worship, because we are in Christ, he sees Jesus' perfect works. That is no excuse for us to come flippantly. But that is more of a motivation to come prepared, knowing that what Christ has done for us, we can come and worship God and he is pleased with our worship. Rest in that. The second thing we need to know is God's presence is no longer in the temple made by man. God's presence is no longer in a temple made by man. The writer of Ecclesiastes was living in an age where the, where the temple was the only place you could go to enter into the presence of God. And even then, the Israelite people couldn't just cruise on into the temple. They had to... They couldn't even enter the inner courts. They had to go through or commune with God through the priests. The priests would, re would relay the message of worship, thanksgiving, repentance, whatever it is, the priests would be the one that would relay that message. There had to be a mediator to both represent them to God and vice versa to represent God to them. But through Christ, 
God's presence became accessible to all who put their faith in him. Now, to the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the idea that through Jesus, sinners could actually commune with God was absurd. Only at the temple and through the priests could anyone approach God. God is too holy for anyone to come directly to him, which is true. He is too holy. But Jesus claimed to be the true temple. In John chapter 2, verse 19, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, Has... It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John offers commentary, he says in verse 21, but he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. It's in the book of Colossians that we read in chapter 1, verse 19. For in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the new temple that houses the glory of God. But not only was Jesus the new temple, he is also our great high priest, Hebrews 4 tells us. And he is also our all-sufficient sacrifice, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, John 1.29 tells us. And by being priest and sacrifice, Jesus effectively is the only way to God. John 14.6, he says as much, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Who can you say, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, does his works. If Jesus is our temple and our mediator and our all-sufficient sacrifice, that means that if we are in Christ, we are in God's presence forever. There is no building or ritual that we must perform to enter into God's presence. As a Christian, we are in God's presence always and forever because we abide in Christ. That's wonderful news, is it not? But there's more. More good news. After Jesus makes this statement about how we have God's presence through him, he goes on to say that he is going to give us the Holy Spirit to take up residence in our hearts, making us these little temples, so to speak, that house the glory of God. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Which means that if the Holy Spirit has taken residence in you, you have been commissioned to help bring people into God's presence. Let that sit a little bit. If the Holy Spirit is in us, we have been commissioned by God to help bring people into his presence. This structure that we're in today, this church building, does not house the glory of God. Pastor Daniel and myself are not your mediators. Jesus is our only mediator, and God resides in this building this morning because you are in this building. Because we are the temple. The Holy Spirit resides in us. That's amazing. That's amazing. 
So then, if how ancient Israel approached God in temple worship mattered, how much more so for us who are in God's presence continually? How much more so for us to be quick to hear, to be eager to listen, to be slow to speak, to check our hearts daily as we wake up every single morning in the presence of God? My final encouragement is this. Do not only prepare yourself for Sunday worship. Prepare yourself every single day to be in God's presence because that is the reality of being a Christian, is every single day we are in God's presence. Amen? So let the words of the psalmist become our daily meditation in Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we go throughout our day, the reality of who we are in Christ sets in even further. And that by your grace, God, we would be obedient. In the power of your Spirit, Lord, we would be good listeners. We would be eager to pay attention and obey, just as a son sits under his father's wisdom, I pray, God, that we would be those children who eagerly await your beautiful and lovely word and see the value in it and be motivated by grace to live in light of it. I'm so thankful, God, that you've given us the Holy Spirit. God, I'm so thankful that you've given us Jesus. How we don't need to attempt to come to you in some way where we are going to a temple and mediating through another man and perfect man and trying to have this fellowship with you. God, through Christ, we have beautiful relationship with you because Christ both lived for us and died for us and rose. What a beautiful hope that we have in Jesus. I pray, God, that as we leave this place that you would be glorified through our heart's meditations. God, that the words that come out of, our, out of our mouth, Lord, would be from a genuine and sincere and God-fearing heart. That we would desire to honor you and please you and love you in all that we do, all that we think, all that we say. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, will you stand with me as we sing another closing song?